Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on September 9th of 2018 under the headline, Watching Bugs in a Stump Led to the Invention of the Modern Chainsaw. Here we go. Sometime shortly after the end of the Second World War, a logger named Joseph Buford Cox was out in the woods, probably doing some informal timber cruising on a patch of salvage timber, one of the standing forests killed in the Tillamook Burns. Using his axe, he split open a stump and found it was full of timber worms, the four-inch-long larvae of the timber beetle. This was bad, but it was pretty common. In the late 1940s, the vast tracts of timberlands killed and left standing in the Tillamook Burn were like a banquet for timber worms, and the little devils were astonishingly fast. Finding them here probably meant a logging operation would be a lot less productive. Joe took a minute to look over the worms as they continued to bore into the stump, trying to get away from him. Sawdust dropped away from their jaws in prodigious streams, and Joe watched them sink slowly into the stump. Some were going against the grain, cross-cutting, some were going with it, ripping— All of them were going at about the same speed, and that speed was almost preternatural. How, Joe wondered, how did they do it? Now, Joe Cox was an engineer, but not an engineer by university training. His formal education had actually stopped at the fifth grade, but an engineer by nature, and a very good one. He'd made a pretty decent living all his life by figuring things out and creating solutions to problems. Just now, he was in Oregon with his brother, working for various Jippo logging outfits and rotating through positions from choker setter to saw sharpener. A week or two earlier, the outfit he was working for had asked him to evaluate a new power saw to see if it might make sense to start using it on jobs. It was a semi-portable unit, mounted on a chassis like a two-wheeled wheelbarrow and powered by a motorcycle engine. Joe's verdict? Nope. Definitely not. Quote, We couldn't fall a tree as quick as we could with a handsaw, Joe told writer Ellis Lucia. This seemed strange to me because the power saw had plenty of stuff. I was a pretty fair filer at the time and figured that if I could make a power saw cut as efficiently as a crosscut, it should practically fall through the wood. The motorcycle saw definitely did not fall through the wood. But now Joe was watching a bunch of timber grubs practically falling through a stump, leaving prodigious little piles of sawdust behind them. Maybe, Joe thought, he could learn something from them that would lead to a better power saw. Back at his home in Portland, Joe set up a little experiment station in the basement with a magnifying glass and some timber worms and some wood for them to chew up. He inspected their teeth, noting the C-shape and how they chiseled away the wood with their jaws moving side to side like a miner digging a tunnel with a short shovel rather than scratching at the fibers before them. He inspected the sawdust under the microscope. It wasn't dust. It was shavings. Tiny chips. It didn't take him long to figure out that he was onto something. The crosscut saws that were then the state of the art worked on the principle of a sharp knife point scratching at the wood. One blade would scratch at one side of the kerf, another would scratch at the other side, and the squared-off raker teeth would drag away the loosened wood. 
The problem was this scratcher saw principle didn't work very well at high speeds. The blades did less cutting on each pass, and they got dull much faster, so sharpening chainsaw blades was a huge and tedious part of any mechanized operation. Working from the basic design of a timberworm's jaws, Joe doped out a cutting chain that looked similar to a motorcycle drive chain, with a cutting tooth sticking out every few links. The cutting teeth were hook-shaped chisels that would bite into the wood and essentially carve away chips. And those chips were big enough and clean enough that rakers weren't necessary to clear them out of the kerf. Finding that the chisels tended to grab too much wood, Joe added a bump in the metal just in front of the chisel on each link. By filing down the bump, which is known as a gauge, he could control how big a bite each chisel took. Joe immediately filed a patent on his design and then spent some time in the basement refining it. It took him a while to get it to market. He wasn't a rich man, although he soon would be. But finally, in 1947, he launched his company, calling it the Oregon Saw Chain Corporation, with a payroll of four employees helping him assemble chains in the basement of his house. Ten years later, Joe's company all but owned the market. Their operation had moved to a big facility on the outskirts of Portland, and their sales force was selling overseas. The name of the company had been shortened to Omark, although the chain was still stamped Oregon. By then, of course, reliable, lightweight aluminum two-stroke engines had been developed. And one of those, linked to one of Joe Cox's bug chains, constituted a modern chainsaw. Today, with the exception of some specialized applications, practically every chainsaw in operation uses Joe's bug chain. The patents have expired, of course, so every manufacturer is free to make the stuff. But Omark's Oregon saw chain is still the original and the market leader. Key sources in this story included works by Ellis Lucia and Chainsaw Age. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.